Hi, Steve Barsh from Dream Adventures. Welcome to another episode of Dream It Live. Today, we're going to be joined by good friend Lark Wang, who's at Harvard Business School. We're going to talk about how to leverage investor biases when raising. Laura, thanks for joining us today. Hi, such a pleasure. Hello. Oh, it's good to see you. Now I can actually see you. It's yeah, terrific, great and everything's to see you. working. Good to see you. So it's going to be great. We're going to have an interesting conversation today. Let me just get started on a couple things real quick. First, to reintroduce myself, Steve Barsh. I'm one of the managing partners at Dream Adventures. Again, welcome to Dream It Live, a weekly episode we look to do and just talk to great change makers and interesting people like Laura. Every day, just as a reminder, we work with, in, work with and invest with great urban tech, health tech, secure tech startups from around the world, mostly in the United States, but from around the world. Today, we're going to be sharing best practices. Laura is going to join us, talk to, her, talk to us about her observations and techniques about uh, investors meeting with startups and biases that take place and how to take advantage of that. If you're a startup or an investor and you want to learn more about DreamIt, please go to dreamit.com and let us know in the interim. Let's dive in. Laura, welcome again to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I so I'm familiar with the Philadelphia area and Dream yep. It. It's so nice to be on. Um, now living in Boston, um, I'm a professor of leadership and entrepreneurship here at the Harvard Business School. Um, and I just wrote a book um, called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, which builds on a lot of the research that I've been doing for the last decade or so um, mm -hmm. to really talk about um, how individuals, how entrepreneurs can turn the constraints, the obstacles, the adversity that they're facing um, mm -hmm. to find and create their own edge. Very, very cool. Very cool. And you used to, I know we first met when you were living in Philadelphia, yeah. you used to teach at Wharton, Harvard called, now you're at Harvard. It's great. It's great. And I hope everything's well with your family in Boston. And it's Stay with yours there. too. Say Thank hello you. to your lovely wife for I, me. I will. I will. Have you been there for a, a year now, a year and a half, two years? How long is so it? I have been, um, I've been on the faculty now for two, a little over two years. Wow. But I was commuting back and forth between Philly and Boston for the first year or so. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's at least it's not a time zone change. That's what my wife says. She That's right. <laughs> so anyway, let's, let's talk today. Again, we're going to talk about how to leverage certain investor biases when raising. I want to break this show in up into a kind of four parts. I want to talk about some basic definitions. I know we've talked in the past about implicit bias and explicit bias. I want to make sure everybody understands what that's about and what that means. Um, where you've been focusing your time, your research, the entrepreneurs and investors you've worked with, the research you've been doing. I want to talk about Getting an Edge, your new book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I've just read the excerpts and it looks great. If it builds on the conversations we've had in the past, I'm really excited to read it. And then I really want to dive into startups. So the majority of people that watch this show are startups. They're early stage investors. Um, excuse me, early stage startups and entrepreneurs from around the world. So I want to try to figure out like how, if this is what investors are thinking, how does it, a, a, a startup take advantage of that kind of thinking? Um, so we're going to go through, as we go through this show, by the way, we're going to try something new. We want to ask some simple questions of our audience that joins us. Um, we usually have a pretty interesting audience across multiple channels. We're right now broadcasting on LinkedIn, we're on YouTube. We're on Facebook and Twitter Live. So some, uh, we're going to ask some pop-up questions. We're going to ask our, so we're going to take questions, by the way, at the end of the show. People can write questions in the comments. We'd like to get those, but we're going to ask some pop-up questions as we go along, and we're going to ask our first question. And our first audience question, we're going to be talking a lot about meeting and uh, pitching investors. The first question is, for meeting and pitching investors, do you love it? hate it or do you just do it so go into the comments section now how do you feel about meeting and pitching investors victoria and dustin are working in the background to see if people and how many people reply so we'll just take 10 seconds if you go into the comments now how do you feel about meeting and pitching investors do you love meeting with and pitching investors hate it or just do it we'll just give it a, a 10 or 20 seconds for people to reply we'll hang for a minute and um, I just want to check one thing on my iPad and see if we're live on LinkedIn would be helpful. Um, okay. All right. Good. And we are. And Victoria, any feeling? We're just going to do like rough estimates of like, you know, are people, um, you know, hitting it or not? Have people? And what is it basically? They love it, hate it? You have to tell yes, me. Yes, love it. Less love it. Okay, so with the response so far is it seems that most people tend to love meeting and pitching investors. I know it's not everybody's thing, and I want to get into that. because Well, they have to kind of say that, seeing... <laughs> If, no, they're, okay. if they're like my students, though, they're thinking, well, there's sort of a it depends option. Okay. <laughs> what, what do you, let's, let's, let's explore that. It depends on what? 
Well, I mean, I think investors to some extent are a necessary part of the, you know, a necessary component of the ecosystem. And so they right. rely on it. They know that they need this funding. It's critical. Um, right. And and I think, um, you know, when it goes well, it can be an, a magical sort of experience. You're, you're right. getting to interact with really great people with really great thoughts. Um, when it doesn't go well, I, I suspect that there's lots of this hated piece. They didn't get me. They didn't get the vision. They didn't get the company. All right. of that. And it's interesting you say that because a lot of times we meet with and work with so many startups every single year. Again, there's like three verticals and we talk to thousands of startups and work with like 30 or 40 a year. And what's so interesting is like they don't get my vision. They don't get the competition and the differentiation. A lot of times we find it's their delivery is kind of poor. Right. right? They're just they're, they're not different. They're not unique. They don't they don't understand that. Um, we try to work with startups and help it better. And we put all kinds of content out there to solve that problem. But sometimes maybe enough entrepreneurs don't reflect upon themselves, you know, and look yeah. in the mirror. Here's the other just quick thing, and then we'll go back. People often forget being an entrepreneur and pitching investors is filled with tons of rejection. Yeah. If I remember correctly, when Jeff Bezos was first pitching Amazon, it was 60 investors till somebody said yes. 60, yeah. six zero. Yeah. It's not like, you know, love it, hate it. Like, well, so many people say no. That's unfortunately the name of the game. This is a very yeah, heavy. Absolutely. And there's so much information in those no's. Right. I mean, when you right. get those no's, um, like that's really when you want to double down and try and understand and get another no so you can kind of right. figure out because at some point those no's turn into yeses. Um, and the more you're able to sort of understand and really like sit with that no or that failure, um, that actually makes your pitch that much better. It makes you able to understand that inherent value you provide, or maybe it's that you had that inherent value, but you weren't presenting it in the right way. That's cool. We're going to come back to that. I'm not going to let that comment go. But I want to, we have to keep going on other stuff. But I'm going to tell you what we're going to come back to on that. So many investors say no, but they won't tell you the real reason why. Yeah. Right. They'll say, it's not in my wheelhouse. This is too early. Come back to us when you have more traction. And, and a lot of times I find investors, to be honest, like they just bullshit. They don't they won't tell you because I always want to preserve optionality and they won't tell you the real reason because they don't want to be too negative because they want you to come back just in case you happen to make it. It's something we do at Dream. We do something called mock VCs where we're like we give our very honest opinion. It's like brutal honesty. Anyway, some people call it Dream It Fight Club. Okay, so let me keep going. So for people that are watching today, thank you for tuning in. As we go through it, comments I make, Laura makes, if you strongly agree or disagree, put it in the comments. If you like what we're saying, don't like what we're saying, we're gonna be very opinionated. You know, you can't hurt us feeling, love to hear what you think. Again, we're gonna do open Q&A at the end. So if you have questions for Laura, please put them in the comments section and we'll answer your questions. Also, if you have ideas for future guests and show topics, uh, please let us know and we'll give you a shout out. By the way, here's a shout out, Americus Reed. Do you remember Americus from Morgan? I do, great I do. Marketing professor. So he was on the show a few weeks ago and I was like, who else should we have on? She's like, oh, this woman, she's terrific. Laura Wang at, at HBS. It's like, oh my God, I forgot. I forgot she's not at Wharton. I was, I was in Wharton mode. I was like, I know her. He's like, I'll make an intro. I was like, you don't need to make an intro. So thank you for Americus. He's the one that suggested um, to have you on. Okay. Send my love to American. He's great. He was so terrific. He By is. the way, we, I adore him. So we, he is so awesome. We talked yesterday. I don't know if you happen to notice one of the <clears throat> SoftBank companies collapsed or was announced uh -huh. that collapsed yesterday. Different one. Brandless. Right after I don't know however many hundreds of millions of dollars, Brandless decided they were shutting down. I texted Americus because he's all about brands and brand identity, and he was uh, not the least bit surprised. Let's just put yeah. it that way. He's yeah. like, when you name yeah. a company Brandless, it's okay. Let's get into some basic definitions. <laughs> Let's talk sure. about you and start getting into it. So I wanted to get out of the way. Again, people talk about biases. So let's, you teach at the graduate level at Harvard. Let's bring it down to like the freshman 101 level. When we talk about biases, there's two types of biases, right? Implicit and explicit biases. Could you help us understand which is what? Why do I care? Yeah, What's I mean. that mean? Yeah, I mean, there's the best way is sort of to, to illustrate through some examples, right? I mean, explicit bias is you go into a situation and you are already, you've made your decisions based on some sort of characteristic. Implicit mm -hmm. is that there's something underlying it that leads to that same result, um, but you're not in exactly sure or you haven't quite sort of thought about what that is. So the example is sort of, um, you know, I've done some research, for example, that looks at um, 
entrepreneurs who have an accent, right? And mm -hmm. they go into um, a, yeah. So for example, an entrepreneur goes in, they're an immigrant or not an immigrant for whatever reason, they have an accent and they're pitching their venture. Um, and I find all sorts of negative outcomes that they're less likely to get funding for their ventures. They're less likely to get introductions. There's less, mm -hmm. you know, all of these sorts of things. Now, the explicit bias is it's because you have an accent and we think you're not able to communicate it as well. And so that's why you're, you are not getting the funding or the access to resources. What I found, however, in a bunch of different tests and experiments and studies that I've run is that, in fact, it's not actually about communication or accent um, that you know, we know we can't explicitly bias against something based on mm -hmm. their accent. And instead we have um, rationale for why we don't invest. We can all agree that, for example, we need somebody who's interpersonally influential, mm -hmm. and that's a good team player that can close the sale. And it just so happens that when whenever certain investors rate entrepreneurs with accents, they're rated the lowest on things like interpersonal influence, being a team player, thinking outside the box, all those sorts of things. So there's this implicit piece of it that leads to the same outcome, which is not investing or not providing resources to that entrepreneur. Got it. And, so, so, yeah, so let me, yeah, just, let me ask you a question about gender, yeah. It happens with gender, race, ethnicity, all sorts of things. It's not right. It can happen with any attribute visible or invisible. So I'm going to fast forward and then come back. So yeah. what are the, for startups that are already watching it now, so what do I do? Let's say I'm from India and I have an Indian accent. I'm Israeli. Yeah. I have an Israeli accent. I mean, I can't tell you the number of entrepreneurs we work with from those countries, right? Yeah. I have an accent. Am I supposed to take accent neutralization? Like I need to get yeah. funding. I'm trying to meet with, do I have my, my COO pitch instead of me that if I know that's going to be a bias, do I say, this is unfair, I'm going to pitch anyway? Like how do I overcome an issue like that. Yeah, this is exactly why, I mean, I know we'll get into it later, but that's exactly yeah. why I wrote the book, which is that I had been studying all, I mean, I had been studying inequality and disadvantage and founders who feel underestimated for such a long time, for over a decade. And it sort of started to get depressing because I would get this question mm -hmm. of what can we do about it? Are there right. ways to level the playing field? Mm -hmm. And so the last couple of years, it was all around, you know, what are strategies and tactics and things that, entrepreneurs and individuals can actually do to not only level the playing field, but to take these sort of um, presumed obstacles and these um, these sort of stereotypes and flip them in their mm. favor. Are there ways that you can flip these in your favor to give yourself an edge? And in fact, I found one of the key components is redirecting and guiding people. So for example, what I would do was I would have people with accents go into mm. a pitch meeting and I would tell them and I would say, the perception that they have of you is that you're right. not as interpersonally skilled, that you're not as good interpersonally. So right. go in there and when they ask you questions, address that. And so they'd inevitably get asked questions like, you know, if I was your lead investor and, you know, tell me about a time when, and they would tell them, tell the investor about times when, for example, they fought for resources for their team or they right. didn't stop until they closed the deal. And what that did was in a very benign way. Oh, interesting. Right. It allowed them to um, still have the same positive assets that they were perceived right. with, but then take those perceptions mm -hmm. and flip them so that they were now seen as assets as well. And I found right. that now those accented individuals were just as likely, if not more, to get the funding. Wow, that's really interesting. Now I know on your website, and I know I think Dustin pulled this in advance. You have like edge quizzes and all. Does it get into that? Like, no, but does it get into things like that where you understand, like, figure out what the biases are so you can, like, what you're just talking about? If this is the bias, this is how you overcome it, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the quiz is really around like how positioned. There it is. Take the edge quiz. I don't know if you can right, see. How it. well positioned are you to create your edge? So right. About oh, Dustin's doing the quiz now. <laughs> right, 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 right. You work for a large company, like. How do you engage with your direct manager or boss? These sorts of right. things that sort of right. give you an indication of, right, how do you, what do you think, how do you think others perceive you? What are those mm -hmm. sort of perceptions? And the, the sort of challenge here is that a lot of times we go into situations where we feel like the odds are stacked against us or that we're at some sort of adversity. And we say things like, I know it seems like because I have an accent or right. I know because I'm a woman that X, Y, and Z, but that's like, that automatically makes your counterpart go into confrontation mode. Mm. 
And they're, they're automatically going to say, no, 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 that's not what it is about at all, even if it is, right? right. And so by getting at those underlying perceptions mm-hmm. in a very benign, no harm, no foul kind of way, right, you address it. And if they weren't thinking that you're less interpersonally skilled, there's no harm because now you've right. kind of just given them an example of when you, you've been able to do something and accomplish something. Very cool. So let me just go back to the to the beginning for a split second. Implicit, explicit bias. Implicit is almost like unconscious. Explicit it's, it's is it's less it's less conscious, less okay. less right, yeah. And explicit is I know I have the bias, you know, I can almost wear it on my sleeve kind of thing. Yeah. Is okay. Absolutely. Got it. Just okay. So so again, let, let's go a little deeper, like what you've been focusing on. You started to open up on that. That's great. You know, in all of your research, what are you know, what have you come to realize? Or, or let's drill down a little further. What are one or two of the biggest surprises in the last five or 10 years of looking at this? And I know we talked about this over dinner months and months ago, you, yeah. you were going through this. What are one or two of the biggest surprises that are kind of the biggest shocks to you or people that you talk to all the time that in all of this research and meeting with so many entrepreneurs and investors? I mean, I think one of the biggest surprises is the role of gut feel for investors. I mean, I went okay. into this so it's sort of studying how do investors actually make decisions. And mm-hmm. um, I realized that investors sort of um, very often, especially in the really early stages when there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowability, that they mm-hmm. rely a lot on, um, you know, their intuition. And but wait, I, fact, thought, wait I thought it's due diligence and financial models and talking well, to customers. Is, and, yeah. The due diligence and the financials is sometimes post hoc rationalizing what they already Got knew they wanted to do anyways. But the interesting thing is that there's actually there's actually like a stigma attached to that, but that's not accept that's not wrong. St- it's stigma not attached wrong. attached to what? To just saying, oh I made this decision based on my gut. Well, okay. So I should say some investors are like Got it totally take pride in the fact that I just, you know, so I had, for example, one investor that I was interviewing at one point in time and we had this 45 minute interview and I asked him, how do you make your decision? And he kept saying, I rub my tummy. I rub my tummy for like 45 minutes. I kept saying, can you like elaborate on that? Can you tell me more? (laughs) I rub my tummy, which is like his way of saying, I use my, I use my gut feel. No kidding. Um, Wow. But all right. What I find in my research is that investors who use their gut feel mm-hmm. are not necessarily going to, if you just look at an aggregate returns point of view, not necessarily going to do better, but they're much better at pinpointing the home runs. Right. They're more likely to identify those, you know, extraordinarily unprofitable investments. And so there's some sort of information in their right. interest based on patterns, experience. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's subconscious and full of bias and emotional, like we right. tend to think about when we when we say the word gut feel or intuition. And in fact, sometimes getting more of the data, getting more of that information and the analytical sort of stuff um, makes the effect go away. You change your mind. Um, so, so that's sort of one one category of things mm-hmm. that I that have been surprising is around how decisions are made and how investors actually make decisions. Uh, and I'd say the other is sort of around perceptions and attributions is mm-hmm. from the entrepreneur side is that, you know, entrepreneurs tend to think it's about, you know, hard work and that the hard work will speak for itself. But so much right. of it is dictated by signals and perceptions and attributions kind of further to one of your initial points um, before. Right. So what what is that? So what are those perceptions? Like you said, hard work. I mean, everybody talks about startups are hard and people talk about, you know, the the expressions like hustle porn, like how hard I'm working. But is it so? So it's it's I think that's part of it. Look, startups aren't easy. We talk to startups all the time. It's a roller coaster. The ups are great. The downs are horrible. And that's just the way it goes. Hard work is critical. It is critical. But hard work alone is not going to, I mean, that's the thing. When people put in all the hard work and then they feel frustrated because the outcomes were different, um, it's absolutely a part of the equation. Sure, it's one part. It can't be the entire part of it because so much of it is dictated by perceptions and attributions and signals and cues. Right. I'm just thinking, by the way, of another Wharton person, right? If you've got grit, well, it takes more than grit, right? Grit's part of it. You have to have that perseverance to, to keep pushing through. Well, but anyway, that's grit, and grit. I mean, those are absolutely factors. Right. And, you know, and, and so I think Angela Duckworth's like work yeah. on is, is phenomenal in the it sense is. that it's a huge predictor, but right. she 
predicts things like spelling bee, who's going to win a spelling bee. Mm-hmm. It predicts like military out, like certain you know outcomes that are uh, that are quantitative that you can assign probabilistic outcomes to. Mm-hmm. Startups are really different. I mean, right. you can do all of the testing in the world. You have you can do clinical trials, you can do market research, you can do all these sort of things that tell you that this is going to be a humongous market, right. huge opportunity, few competitors, lots of different, you know, and you go out into the market and still totally, you know, it, it totally just dies and and right. Don't understand why. Josh Josh Koppelman's a great friend. I don't know if you know Josh. He runs First Round Capital and founder. He's he's terrific in Philly. He's so great. And Josh talks about all the time being a VC is a humbling experience. Yeah. You know, and you you talk to them, and I was an EIR there for a while, and and they've talked multiple times. Like sometimes you're just pounding your fist on the table. This is a great investment or it's a horrible investment. And the number of times that it's just it's the inverse. Or like we should sell this, and not just them, but a lot of people. Oh, the company's never going to make it, and then it takes off, and it's a billion-dollar company. It's just so hard to know, but yeah, it's interesting it's that it's just very humbling. Which is so different, right? It's right. not. It's a. It's approach which is really different, where you're able right. to stomach some absolute losses in exchange right. for these yeah. humongous gains, and so right. like you know they were or they were in the first round of Uber, right? So yeah. you stomach losses, we have huge gains. Again, if people are just joining us, Laura is uh, streaming in today. Thank you for joining us from Boston, from Harvard Business School, where she's a professor. We're talking about how to leverage investor biases when raising. If you have questions, please put them in the comments. If you're just joining the stream, let us know what city in the world you're streaming in from. If you have questions, again, put them in the comments. We'll keep going. So um, so was any other, like you said, one key finding was about gut feel and one investor that really liked to rub their tummy. Um, <laughs> I wonder if they actually do that in front of startups. Any other key, like what have been the biggest surprises besides Besides gut feel, is there one other big surprise when you talk, when you lecture at Harvard or do, you know, for alumni that people are just shocked, like, no, it can't be that way? Oh my gosh, I have so many. Can I give you a couple of small you, ones? Sure, give us a couple. But now, okay. okay, that's Wharton. This is old, but anyway. I know. <laughs> it's good. It's you good. Have, um, you have, you're, you're going back into the archives. Yeah, we are. Well, we have you in action. Here you go. I know. Um, so, I mean, I'll give you one small one, which is, yeah. well, it's, not a, it's a big finding, but it's actually sort of a, you know, a quick, which is um, we realize, we find, you know, we're doing so much, we talk a lot about bias and um, mm-hmm. inequality and dis, you know, disadvantage in, in the start world and I found in one of my studies that um, both male and female investors mm-hmm. uh, were equally likely to discriminate against female entrepreneurs really uh, in wow. certain situations so right. um, in this study we looked at the questions that male and female investors ask to entrepreneurs um, mm-hmm. and this is sort of getting at that implicit like could there be something going right. on and right. we found that um, women are more likely to get asked questions that have to do with you know, prevent what we call prevention focused questions, mm-hmm. things around the risk, the drawbacks, the competition. Men are more likely to get asked questions that are called prevention, uh, promotion focused questions, things around the opportunity and how mm-hmm. big you could take something and the rewards. Um, but both male and female investors were equally likely to do this. So when we talk about things like, you know, um, having more women investors in place right. and having more female mentors look that's certainly not going to hurt right yeah in the right direction for lots of different reasons but it Mm. can't be the only solution for um addressing gender disparities and this is not just about gender right there's when we look at who gets asked different questions based on race ethnicity based on whether or Mm -hmm. not they have a technical background Mm -hmm. um based on lots of different things um so that was sort of one interesting finding um you know yeah go ahead do you ever do sensitivity training for investors to realize like what you're just saying is like, cause women, if, you know, my wife is a serial entrepreneur and CEO, yeah. she runs biotechs running one right, right around the corner from you right now. Right. You know, you'd think that, Oh great. I'm pitching a three other women, but you're saying that doesn't, that doesn't make things any better. Like, do you do any sensitivity training? So if an investor asks the wrong question, they get a little jolt or something like, no, you're being biased. Women I would love women. to do that. If, if, if you have a group of investors that would be willing to allow me to, um, to, to do that in some sort of okay. 
experiment. Um, just give me a call. I, I'm, I'm definitely down for that. Okay, so um, just push in the comments, right? If you're willing to be hooked up to electrodes to get shocked when you give the wrong question. And yeah, the or even watcher, more conservative, like if you're just willing for me to like slap you around a couple of times. Okay, it doesn't have to be right. electric shock, but. Got it, um, got it. Got yeah. But yeah, got so it. I think that was sort of one of the, the interesting things is like when it is implicit, we yeah. tend to assume certain lay perceptions about what's happening, but right. it, it's actually much more universal. The other sort of quick, interesting one that I've yeah. always found fascinating is that, you know, investors talk so much about how they care about passion mm -hmm. and how entrepreneurs need to have passion for what they're doing. And right. then entrepreneurs equally are like, yes, I know investors are, I know I have to demonstrate passion, but time and time again, I found that investors don't actually know what they mean by mm -hmm. passion, that that's one of those intuitive things that mm -hmm. they are reading um, and they call it passion, but it's really this like, mysterious bucket that they throw everything else into when they don't know what category it fits into. So I had one investor, for example, who was telling me about how he only invests in passionate entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And he's saying like, I would never invest in an entrepreneur that wasn't so passionate about what he or she was doing and the vision. Um, the same investor, not mm -hmm. five minutes later, yeah. said, oh, and then there was this guy I didn't invest in because it was like he drank way too much coffee and he was right. way too Passionate. Oh my goodness. So there's all these different interpretations and attributions right. that we make about the same criteria that we tell people we care about. Along those lines, by the way, we hear all the time, or I've heard, you know, because so many of us who dream it are entrepreneurs, right? Which is great because we get to work with so many other great entrepreneurs these days. But you'll hear that investors will say, well, I want to, I want to invest in a missionary entrepreneur, not a mercenary. Exactly. I want somebody who's on a mission, not somebody saying I'm building the company because I want to sell it to Google in three years. Like, well, that's mercenary. I need somebody that's in it for the long haul. You're and right. I've always tried to coach and guide other entrepreneurs to say, you should say the same thing about an investor. Right. I want an investor who's not a mercenary investor, but a missionary, because I need to know that they're in for the long haul. Of course, no investor wants to be like that. Right. They're yeah. looking for the quick flip, but it's not a two way street. OK, let's keep going. Let's talk yeah. about gaining an edge. So you have your new book out, Gaining an Edge. Um, can't wait for the movie. No, sorry. <laughs> you have your book out, Gaining, gaining Edge. So to play me in the movie. Oh, that's cool. Okay, we'll have to talk about it. Actually, we're going to have on next week, Paul Martino. I don't know if you know Paul runs Bullpen Capital. A great investor, great entrepreneur. His cousin, Vinny or something, was accused of a basketball scandal. This true story. Wound up going to prison for it. Okay. Somebody wanted to buy the rights to the movie, and Paul's like, you're getting ripped off. How hard could it be to make a movie? And son of a bitch. Oh, good. We have it up. Paul Paul went to Hollywood and produced a movie. And I think his IMDb rating is like, I don't know, 5.9 or 6. I know what my uh, IMDb rating would be horrible. But anyway, so yeah, this I'm idea. Sure. Where, I'm not sure I'm there yet. That's well, well we could talk to Paul. He'll, he'll yeah, give you yeah, ideas. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do a mashup. But anyway, so um, in gaining an edge, so what do you mean? So your book's all about gaining edge. What do you mean? And I'll just write the, the statement I captured, I think, off of Amazon, right? It's that elusive quality that gives an upper hand and attracts attention and support. So what do you mean by that? What are some examples of gaining an edge? No yeah. one to drive this into startups. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the premise of the book is like some people naturally have an advantage mm -hmm. um, and other people don't. And so you have to be able to create your own advantage, create your own edge. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was based on a lot of the research that I have done in the past couple of years, in the last decade, as well as stories that I had been hearing and people's own stories about how they've faced obstacles and adversity and had to flip that around uh, to their advantage. And, you know, part of it is that structural piece, right? Which is right. that we know that there's not a true meritocracy as much as we're right. kind of sold on that and told about it that um you know there's this myth of meritocracy and structures we've been talking for a really long time about how we you know decades about how things sort of need to change but they're not or they're not mm -hmm. changing quick enough or they're changing in ways that we don't intend and so this was really around how do we empower ourselves mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs as individuals from within within an imperfect system to create and gain our own edge. And, and so it talks about how do you gain that elusive quality, that edge, right. um, but the framework edge actually stands for what I've found through my research that there's these four components, E, D, G, E. Okay. Uh, and the E stands for enrich, 
which is knowing how you enrich and provide value, right? What is that? Um, what is it about you as an entrepreneur that is perfectly situated with that company that you're trying to like, why are you the perfect person to execute on, on this idea, right? Mm -hmm. How do you enrich? What are your basic goods? What are your superpowers? So that's about like knowing how you provide value and knowing how you enrich. The problem is that a lot of times we don't have that opportunity to show how we enrich because we don't belong to the right networks or we haven't right. gotten warm introductions um, and we just don't have that chance. And so the D is for delight, which mm -hmm. is you need to also know how you can delight your counterpart, showing them some something that they hadn't yet considered, something that's unexpected or counterintuitive that then allows you to crack that door open and show how you enrich and provide value. <laughs> and the G is for guide, because mm -hmm. even when you're enriching and, and delighting, you need to continue to guide the perceptions that they have of you. And the final E is for effort and hard work. Because oh, as there's the hard work. About, yeah. yeah, as we spoke about yeah. before, I mean, we often think that hard work comes first, mm -hmm. that if we put in that hard work, that it'll speak for itself. But in fact, when you know how you enrich and delight and guide, that's when your effort and hard work actually work harder for you. Right. No, it's interesting. You know, when, when you use that, and I, I didn't, I apologize. I didn't know that it actually was an but acronym. You haven't read the book yet, Steve. I read haven't read it. the book yet. I will read it. I will read it. I promise. Is it out on Audible yet? So I can it read is. It and okay. I've got to yeah. tell you my voice. you got to be okay listening to me for six hours. Oh, that's hours. awesome. Oh, my gosh. How long did it take you to record a six-hour book, by the way? It was not six hours, I would assume. No. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I was one of the slower ones in terms wow. of recording. It took me four full days, four wow. eight-hour days. Some people can do it in, like, two or three days. Um, I was like, are you sure you don't want a professional voice actor to do this? And they're like, no, 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 you'll be fine. You'll be really quick. And I had to repeat every sentence. Oh my so goodness! Times I realized things about my speech that I never even knew. Like right. I, apparently, I say instead of saying important, I say yeah. important. I drop okay. the T, and oh so goodness. every time they're like, "Can we just hear you say important again?" <laughs> Um, it's like an elocution lesson. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I just want to bring up though, when you talk about it, Rich, one of the things that reminded me of is, you know, a lot of times an investor has a bias and says, mm -hmm. well, what expertise do you have in this area? You have no expertise. And I know some people say, but that's my superpower is not having an expertise. I'm bringing a fresh perspective to it. And when you said like the edge part, the enrich, and it was almost like building upon like, what's your superpower that lets you do this? Like some of my favorite examples of things like uh, items like this, when you look at Travis who started Uber, yeah. Let's see, his, his superpower for running a global transportation company, yeah, he had none. And Brian Chesky started Airbnb, the lodging company. Let's see, he went to RISD and he was designer. What, what edge does he have? Or my favorite example would be the Wright brothers. Oh yeah, they'd build a lot of airplanes, but they, like what, ed, that enriching, it's just interesting because you'd sit there, well, I'm smart, I've got grit, I've got a good idea. I don't know if that builds on what you said, but I always think about that because that's where that's where it's so like yeah they don't but for different people that mm -hmm. comes off in different ways like some people it's like oh yeah that person has failed a lot that's a great thing it's an asset they've been around the block they know other people it's like oh wow you failed a lot like this right is not exactly for you so it so depends on who you are and how mm -hmm. other people are perceiving you and right. that's why that guide piece is right. so important it's so important to to be able to flip those in your favor so that if you have failed a lot you can mm -hmm. position it as hey but this failure has allowed me to see x y and z or you know all of those kind of things where we're, that we're able to do when we truly understand those stereotypes and those perceptions that our counterparts have of us and oh. everyone has this right we right. tend typically think about the normal cast of characters, right? Gender, race, ethnicity, class, religion, sexual orientation. But everyone has something, right? In my mm -hmm. book, I talk about, you know, Dave Dahl, who is a white cis male, mm -hmm. and the sort of per perceptions that he, or Ronan Farrow, right? Sort of right, the, right. who epitomizes white male privilege. But right. yet, every time he walks into a room, he still has to deal with perceptions. Perceptions around, oh, you only got your Pulitzer because of who you are, or you only got access to certain people because of who you are. We all, once we walk into a room, there are people trying to write a story about who we are. 
And that's why it's so critical to guide them to who we authentically are and what our story really is. Okay, you just gave the perfect segue and perfect transition. Hold that thought the moment you walk into a room. We're gonna go talk about startups, but we have another audience question we're gonna lay down, which is perfect. Let's see what people have to say. Okay, next audience question coming up. Do you think, right, as we go into this, do you think that investors make a decision in the first few minutes? You walk in, a lot of people are like, and investors sometimes, like I've made up my mind in the first two minutes as soon as they start their pitch. Do you think so? For people that are watching, that are live with us now, do me a favor, do us a favor, go in the comments right now. Do you feel investors make a decision in the first few minutes? Are yes, no, or not sure? We'll give about 20 seconds and see if people can pop it in the comments. Answer it now. I'd love to get your thoughts, whether you're pitching investors or you have a, a thought and you've seen friends. Do you think they're like, they're listening to the whole 30 minutes or 60 minutes? Or they've made up their mind? And I don't know what you think, Laura. Sometimes people think, it's like um, rationalization is such an important skill for human beings, right? Yeah. They've made up their mind in three minutes and now they're either trying to be unconvinced right. or convinced, right? right? But they've already made up, like, I'm making this investment yeah. unless they can, can unconvince me. So, so let's I'm see curious, if anybody replies. I'm curious what the responses are. Yeah, well, okay, let's see. So one more time, if you have a, give it 10 more seconds, do you think for people that are tuned in right now, go into the comment section or whatever platform, do you think investors make a decision in those first opening minutes that they've already made up their mind. Yes, no, or you're not sure. And we're seeing Victoria says, yes. all, okay. yes so all yes so far. So we have yeah. a couple people. Hold on, let me just look. I'm going to take a peek. Dimitri Harrison, thank you for a yes. Martin says yes. Victoria, I can't read yours. That's not yours. But okay, so mostly, and Martin, oh, Martin. I know Martin. Um, okay, so we got a bunch of yeses, whole bunch of yeses. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that's what do those biases? I think I was a, I was sort of priming the, the yeah. audience there a little bit because I yeah. yeah I mean I absolutely that's that's the piece of the the gut feel right that's the intuition that a lot of times and I always remember I mean the reason I even started looking into this research the reason I even mm -hmm. started studying intuition and gut feel in the um, in the first place was before I even went into academia. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a really quick story, which is that I was working in investment banking, and one of my very first. Um, projects was the VP had come to me and said, okay, I need you and your team um, to help us where we have this client and they're trying to do this. They're trying to do this acquisition, right? It's an right. M&A and mm -hmm. we're the, the, this company's trying to decide whether to acquire company A, B or C. Mm -hmm. so we need you to go and put together an economic model, this big complicated model on whether or not we should go with company A, B or C. So we spend two months putting together this model. With my wait, team. wait, hold on. With discounted cash flows and net present value, like a full. Oh, different it's so fun. The world, different right. interest rates, everything. Right. Like wow. you know, all these sort of things, and we come back and we present this, and we say, yeah, yeah. Oh, your client should go with company B." Yeah. And I'll never forget this. He looks at me and he says, "That was a fabulous presentation. This is a fabulous model, but we already decided that we're going with company A. Wow. So can you now change your model?" to make it stay company A. Oh my goodness. Oh so my goodness. we do these sort of things, right? right. We, make that, we make our decisions and then right. we look for evidence to sort of justify it. Right. And at least, um, unless that evidence is completely somewhere, like taking us down another road, mm -hmm. you know, we use that to sort of justify what we already have decided. Right. Um, and in a lot of my research on gut feel, I show mm -hmm. this and I show that, mm -hmm. but there's a rational reason for this, that investors have to do this because there is no way, based on just the numbers and the returns, mm -hmm. the rational response is to never invest in any startup. Right, right, right. Right? And so there has to be something. There has to be something that says, okay, now pull the trigger. And right. what that pull the trigger thing is, is sort of that intuition that we then back up with all. And now, this is not all investments. I mean, this is mm -hmm. particularly the case for early stage startups. Mm -hmm. um, but we look for cues and signals. We look for entrepreneurs who are committed, right? We look for commitment, we look for execution, we look at all of these these sort of indicators of things that we care about. We look at size of the market. The size of the market to some extent is because if the market's really big and there's this huge opportunity, right, there's also opportunity for this entrepreneur to pivot and have lots of right. second chances and right. find other sort of things to make it work when initially it doesn't. If you have a super small market and a super tailored product, mm -hmm. then you're, you, don't, you just don't have that margin of error. 
Right. Um, yeah, to maneuver and figure it out. By the way, we have a just a quick little plug for ourselves. We have a dream of dose on that topic called total addressable market. Like, how do you actually calculate it? Because we find 90% of entrepreneurs get it completely wrong. I saw one yesterday. I forget, it was maybe a security company. It was like, the market size is $175 billion. No, it's not. It's like, how did you calculate that? So yes, you want a big market. So you have room to maneuver, but it would be nice if your market size was anywhere close to, to being accurate. Um, there's something I wanted to build on on what you just said. It was not just, oh, I know what it was. Have any chance, have you ever read the book? Or do you know Annie Duke? She has a book called Thinking in Bats. Huh? Yeah, Thinking. Yeah. It's so, because. And right, she was a poker player. Who yeah, played, yeah, yeah. You know, thinks about, you know, when we. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I've read the book yeah. and it's, you know, it's a really fascinating sort of, it, it makes you think about the decisions that you make and how it's, you- By the way, it's so much gut feel, yeah. right? It gets back to your point on gut feel. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Yeah. No, but okay. Anyway, so let, let's keep going forward. So we, we talked about startups. You know, we've talked about some of your research and the startup investor relationship, the biases that are play in place, whether it's implicit or explicit bias. And I just want to be careful on time. It's three o'clock and I don't know what time you have to go. I'm good for time, but I don't want to go too long and be careful. So it seems critical for fundraising, right? If you can't understand those biases, you're going to get a lot of no's for the wrong reasons. It's like you said, it's your accent, it's your skin color, it's your gender. Um, what, so what are some of your thoughts? Let's drill a little further. So I'm going to get very startup-y, right? So what are some of your, what are some of the implicit biases that venture investors frequently are bringing to the table that a, that a startup should know about? I mean, I think one is congruence. And this is something that a lot of people, um, I think tend to miss is that the story has to be congruent. Okay. It needs, what needs to be a story, right? It needs to hold together, that kind of thing? to be something that they can tell themselves. They're trying to weave together some right. sort of story for themselves about why is this person doing this? Why is this necessary? Why is there an opportunity here? And a lot of times we're able to tackle one of those or two of those, but not all three. So we mm -hmm. can convince people that there's an opportunity, that the business model makes sense, that the rollout strategy makes sense, but then we're not able to convince them, for example, that we're the one who should be doing that, Got or, right? Or and, and so there needs to be sort of that congruence. And you know, a simplistic kind of example for this is that you know, I study. I've looked a lot at women in masculine-dominated industries, right? And all things, everything being equal, there are women have to deal with feminine type stereotypes, right? Feminine type stereotypes in a masculine type industry. Right. So there's still this sort of nature of like. Even if they, they seem totally competent, well, how warm are they? How communal are they? How, and this is sometimes implicit. It's not sometimes explicit. But experimentally and in, you know, in pitches, what I found is that when a woman taking the same company in the same industry even puts in one or two lines around, and the reason I did this was because I really wanted to help, da-da-da-da, or I was right, really right. to get that. Like, then all of a sudden, the investors are like, oh, that makes sense. Like, right. There's, I a see. there's a there's a there, there's a reason they can put an explanation now for right. good or for bad this right. is not i'm not saying that it's right or, or wrong but right. you give somebody a rationale that then they can that they can riff off of right. and it's going to get get you a lot further so i want to highlight a point because I was, I was going to disagree with you for a minute but now i think i agree but you're the expert not me but <laughs> no no you when you talked about congruence i think a deck and a pitch and how you talk about your startup has to be congruent. We see yeah. it dream it all the time. We, there was a startup this morning that pitched us that I want to talk to one of our managing directors about. There was a massive record scratch. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Awesome. The only problem is your solution doesn't solve the problem that you stated. So I don't believe the rest of it. It's incongruent, right? But I think the congruence you're talking about is the story itself and the story arc and everything you're doing needs to be congruent. And then you as an individual, as an entrepreneur or a founding team, needs to be congruent. That's the that's the lock, right? It's because both. there's it's, it's, it's absolutely both. It's definitely, I mean, but so much of it is determined based on who the entrepreneur, who the founder is. But right. it's both. It's the fit you as the the founder and your fit with the company you're trying to do but there also needs to be congruence within the company i mean like sure you remember like you know when zipcar had their very first um business plan right mm -hmm. if there wasn't a congruence between what their story was and what their financials were so you know the, the story made a lot of sense right. right company you're in the big cities city, people don't always have cars so sometimes mm -hmm. they need a car to take their you know pick someone up at the airport or make a run to Ikea or something. 
and say you want to rent the car. Their financials, when you look at what they were doing, they they were they based a lot of their financials off mm -hmm. of one metric, which is utilization rate. Okay. okay. Yeah. Utilization rate, their utilization rate was at like 80 or 85 percent. I didn't okay. I don't know the backstory. I didn't know this. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure their utilization rate was more like 10%. They just sat there. Well, but, yeah. it was 80 to 85%. And everyone's like, yeah. oh, it makes sense because they're like they're like they're like rental cars, right? Right. They, right. they position themselves as a rental car. And rental right. cars can have 80 to 85% sure. utilization. Because even when you're not driving it, right. you're still it's, in your right. you're still Correct. Paying yeah, for you're paying for it. it. Yeah. That 80% utilization rate for Zipcar means that if there's 24 hours in a day, right. people are still renting your car between the hours of 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Right. and 100% rented outside of those hours. Mm -hmm. It just didn't make any sense. There wasn't congruence. Got it, got it, got it. So again, you, you, like the entrepreneur needs to be congruent with the business. Okay, let's keep going because we're gonna run out of time. So, um, so we talked about biases, gut feel. Last audience question, by the way, so if people can put in the comments, we have one more audience question that we're gonna drive into the end here. So next audience questions, when you meet investors, we're gonna go a little more on bias and investor bias, and I really wanna kind of decode specific things for specific entrepreneurs. When you meet with investors, do you think biases are working for you? or against you. So for those of you that are on the stream with us live, go to the comment section right now, just put in a for you or against you. When you meet with investors, their bias is working for you or against you. And I think everyone, there are certain people, you know, I'm a white male, right? So there's gonna be things that are easier for me, but I know when there's certain people and I'm pitching as a startup entrepreneur, like for instance, I'm for, like, just while people are answering, again, put in your questions, put your answers in the comment section when you meet with investors, their bias is working for you or against you. A bias, I've done lots of startups multiple times. I'm an entrepreneur and I'm from Philadelphia. So I don't know what your thought on this, Laura, but what you think would go. So I'm on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley and Menlo Park, right yeah. by Stanford. And I'm pitching Sand Hill Road uh, VCs. And they say, where are you from, son? I say, I'm from Philly. What bias do you think? Wait, oh, so you're not a member of the tribe. You're not from the Bay Area? You didn't work at Google or Apple? You think there's a bias when I'm in Silicon Valley against an East Coast Philly entrepreneur? You yeah. know, like, I mean, it's not, again, I'm, I'm you know, I'm in a, a, whatever. But let's see. Okay, so what do people say? Yep. Mo mostly I got yeses, right? We see lots of yeses. Yeah, Martin, Dimitri got a yes, a couple other. It looks like Joyce maybe gave us a yes. All right, so we got yeses on that. So let's keep yeah. going. So they, people like think there's a bias. That yeah. makes sense that there that people would think that they would work against you, but right. um, hopefully we're also but the, hopefully the perspective that that's your but that's your opportunity that's your right. opportunity because there's biases and it's based on perceptions. How do you get them to work for you? Right, um, and that's really what the the book is about. How do you flip those biases in your favor? So can, 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 well, hit a couple more examples. I'm a woman. I'm pitching. By the yeah. way, oh, well, let me, I want to go back and ask a question that's slightly different. How do I read the room? So I'm an entrepreneur. I walk into a pitch. I, I walk into a VC firm. I'm running late. I scan the room. How, how do I, I mean, I know who I am. I know biases I think people may have against me or whatever for me or against me. Yeah. How do you read the room? And then how do I work that? Like, again, let's take a woman pitching a group of guys, pitching a group of women or mixed. Like, what do I do? Yeah, I mean, there are some specific ones that you're going to be interpreting in that moment, as well as some, like, universal ones that you're going to know. You're going to know, I'm in this industry, I'm picking yep. this type of business, I'm a woman, here's the sort of things that I was hearing before. Like, those mm -hmm. are sort of things. In the moment, too, you can also read the room. Like, you know, the question around, like, are they making the decision in the first three minutes? Sometimes they're not even listening in the first three minutes because they're already, mm -hmm. they're still thinking about the other, the last venture that they saw, they're thinking right. about the list they're thinking about like you know so there's all of these both um you know things that you know going in as well as what you're reading in the room one of the mm -hmm. ways i talk about lots of different strategies and tactics for how do you hone that intuition because there's mm -hmm. an intuition that comes along with perceiving how others are seeing you um, understanding how others are perceiving you um mm -hmm. and how do you actually hone that and um lots of different sort of ways that that you can do that but um you know what Guys, there, sorry. Let me ask. No, it's okay. Nothing to be sorry about. It, it, is there anything? Is it in your book? Is it on your website? Is there? We can put a link in the comment section after. We'll put it in later. Okay. Something I could read. I'm African American. I'm Latino. I'm a woman. Wow. I have a foreign accent. Is there a decoder like that? You know the secret decoder ring. Like if this, then that. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. So, yeah. So there's yeah. two pieces of like one is okay. So like there's no like four. Wait, but is there like is, can you email me and we'll put a link in? I don't know if there is. Like here's the cheat sheet. But okay. Well, I, I have it, but... one chapter where I actually okay. basically insult everybody. Okay. Like, awesome. I insult All right. Everybody. You I don't say, play favorites. No, right? I do. I'm like the stereotypes of these people are this. This the right. stereotypes of these people are this. That you know, if you're a woman, this is a stereotype. If you're black, this. If you're a black right. woman, this. If you're oh like, my, I right. insult everyone to okay. sort of get at the root of that. But right. there is no sort of formula, and so that's why you know when people are like, "What are the five steps that I need to create my ed?" I wish mm -hmm. I could give a recipe, but the mm -hmm. more you make this a perspective of how you think about how you enrich and how other people see you Got and it. how you delight and guide, the more you're going to have that power to really form those deeper, richer interpersonal interactions. Okay, cool, cool. All right, so let's do this. I want to get into some audience questions because we're running really late. I appreciate you staying on with us so long today. Um, so before we do that, just a quick note just about Dream It, about us, and then we'll get into questions, right? So every day we work with great startups, secure tech, health tech, urban tech startups. If you want to know more about what we do, go to dreamit.com. If you know of a great startup we should be talking to, go to dreamit.com. You go to slash apply, let us know. In the interim, let's dive into your questions, which is much more important. So here's some questions that came in. I'm going to read them. They should pop up on the screen. Thank you, Dustin, for live producing. Here's our first question. Do you think founder diversity helps when raising? Does it better the odds to have founder diversity on the team? That's your first question. So I think it depends on the company. I mean, I think right. we often, and this is even when pitching too, yeah. right? A lot of times we like, we want to follow this sort of formulaic thing. Like, okay, start with a slide about the pain point, then talk right. about the market, then talk right. about the, I mean, it totally depends on what your company is. If you're doing something that's super disruptive, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we start getting into like all of the, the, the fancy, the fancy schmancy. And then what happens is investors don't understand. They don't want to make it seem like they don't understand. Right. And then they laugh on to one sort of tangential thing and go off on that path and mm -hmm. you've totally lost them um, mm -hmm. there what you need to do is distill it into something as simplistic as possible mm -hmm. so that they understand um, and you can have that that conversation the opposite happens when you have like for example if you're trying to manufacture a brand new water bottle like why do we we get it we get what it is right. like why right, right. Why is it going to be disruptive? Why is it going to change things? Same thing with founder diversity, right? Mm -hmm. What is it about the founder diversity that's really going to, you know, because diversity can come in lots of different formats. And if you're just taking an existing business model mm -hmm. and trying to execute that as quickly as possible, right. diversity is going to mean something very different than if you're trying to do something really innovative and, and, and disruptive and you want lots of different diverse thoughts um, and so the better the odds, uh, what, how to better the odds is by linking that back to what it is you're trying to do it's and that, what that diversity is allowing you to achieve. So it's the congruency, right? It's your congruency. For sure. For sure. That's yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Next question up. I just want to get through these quickly. We have a bunch. Thank you. If people have more questions, just keep putting them in the comment section. Um, next question. If I don't like to present and I'm introverted, how can I change? So a lot of this, we've been talking about pitching investors, but if like, you know, we'd asked people, do you love to meet and pitch VCs? Right. Yes, no, not sure, I do what I have to. Any suggestions? Because, you know, if you have like somebody who's particularly, not maybe at Harvard, but they're at MIT across the street, they, engineers sometimes tend to be a little bit more introverted. Stereotypes. There, I'm stereotyping, but I, by the way, I just, I know a lot of great MIT founders <laughs> and entrepreneurs. There's one, Brilliant, that's on the West Coast that I've been doing a lot of work okay, with. Okay, that right part now. is in my chapter where I insult everyone. Okay. So, okay, know, okay. Insult everyone. So, but at least, you know, at least I have opinions, but, and I say them. But if I don't like to present, the point is, if I'm introverted, right. what do I do here? Any right. suggestions? So there's two things. I mean, one is you don't present and you, you have somebody else present. The second is you do present and you figure mm -hmm. out how to actually make this work. You know, I want to take the second, which is you're yeah. introverted and you figure out how to sort of make, make this work. Look, anyone can learn it. Not everyone mm -hmm. is willing to learn. Right? right. And what I mean by that is to learn anything, not just pre presenting. Sure. Um, right. I always say like, you know, you have to be able to, and I, I want to take a little bit away from the presenting itself because mm -hmm. I got to say, like, I as a child was painfully shy. Really? Uh, yes, I was painfully wow. shy. Not great. I was like terrified by presenting in public speaking. And and now I'm a professor who regularly just has to like stand up in front of 94 students. Um, and you know, and so I think. Um, 
There's but by the way, at least you're not a professor at a at a at a prestigious college. It's like yeah. you just teach at a community college, right? Harvard. No, I mean, anyway, yeah. what, what, what it takes is like, and what I've had to go like so much embarrassment to be honest. Like mm -hmm. you have to be willing to, because what happens is a lot of times you embarrass yourself, mm -hmm. and most people are sort of like, oh, never again. I don't right. ever want to put myself in that situation again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those situations where you're embarrassed, there's right. so much data in that. Right about like why you're uncomfortable, what you value, what the other people value, that's where you should be doubling down. Right. Put and yourself more of those embarrassing situations. That's how you're going to learn. That's how you're going to get better. And that's how you're going to change in anything, whether it's presenting or otherwise. Right. And we tell, by the way, we talk to our kids all the time. What's the most important thing you learn in school? It's how to learn, right? You can learn this. It's yeah. just, yeah. it's hard, but okay. Next question, let's keep going. Um, should you, okay, next question. Should you prioritize investors based on biases they may or may not have. So I'm yeah. just thinking like if I, you know, if I'm Indian, should I meet with Indian? I'm just gonna be, you can tell me if I'm politically incorrect, by the way, cause I'm just so off my mark here on, on this is not a topic I typically, if I'm African American, do I, you yeah. know, is, should so, I almost tweak and tune? Yeah, I think that, um, okay, look, there are so many different types of investors out there and there's so many investors investing at different stages, different industries. It's so important, again, like I guess this is sort of congruence again, but it's so important to find the right investors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the right investors is based on stage of company or industry or technology. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the right investors is based on the type of mentoring they're gonna provide you and what you need at the stage of company that you're gonna be. Sometimes it's gonna be based on biases. So right. if you can, I mean, you're putting yourself in a slightly more you know preferable position if you're already you know getting investors that are going to be that, that, that are open to and you're already starting off sort of on second or third base the problem is that we don't always have that opportunity that we might be just starting on first base always right, right. okay we have we have so, five more questions do you have like five oh more gosh. minutes for us? okay can we do okay can we do two we'll do two hold on i'm gonna zip forward let's see uh i'm gonna take i'll just okay Next question on do Mohammed that I'm highlighted on Dustin just you know Mohammed Al Ghazar Mohammed thank you for your question he asked over LinkedIn do you think founders get biased based on where they are from not only the accent absolutely absolutely okay. and not just these traits so we yeah. tend to think that people are there's perceptions of, of us based on our characteristics or our traits or you know any and but it's not it's not just those traits it's also our trajectory it's mm -hmm. where we've been in the past where we are today and lots of assessments about like what our potential is and where we're going so we need to be guiding people not just to our traits and our characteristics but yeah. also our journey and the trajectory that we've been on because they're also writing a story about us based on where they think we were and where we've come from and where we're going okay two more uh next one's going to be as it for don bauman on linkedin asked don thank you for your question say you need to raise this a little long i don't know if we got the whole thing up so oh, there it is say you need to raise three million what do you see most often? Go for it out of the gates or break it up into stages 250, 750, a million? I have thoughts on it too. Go ahead. I, if I, you mean, want I, I think I, I have thoughts, but you know, I think, um, like, look, it depends on how much. It, I, I think it's not about money, it's about time, right? right? So I think it's about how much time you need, how much runway you need. You sure. don't want to be in constant fundraising mode. Right. So I would say, where did that 3 million come from? Was this just some arbitrary, like, I think I have a valuation of X, and so right. hence I need to be raising this? Or is it like, I need 3 million to hit these specific milestones? Because what happens is you don't want to down round. You also don't want to be able to not hit these sort of milestones. So think about what that 3 million is for. Sometimes it's better to raise less and to show that with that less amount of money, you were able to achieve X, Y, and Z. So Too think about yeah. what you link to. That would be yeah. my, you know. Two quick thoughts. So we just released the dream of docilness. How much should you raise? When people say how much should you raising? And what do you tie that to? Which is like what you're saying, it's goals. So we have a little five minute segment on that that just came out on YouTube. But another thing that we find is, you know, how big a bet are you asking people to place? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if there's biases, I mean, they need to prove it. Like people are more inclined to write maybe a million dollar check than three. It's a much bigger bet if we think to use the thinking and bets metaphor. Okay, I'm gonna take one more. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Last question we're going to take is from Adway Tare, if I pronounce that correctly. So Adway on LinkedIn asked, uh, hold on, let me just see. There's two questions he asked. Let me just see. Um, okay. I don't know if they're completely related to bias, but I'll ask this one. Traction and seed funding seems like chicken and egg. How can this be addressed? 
Any thoughts? And maybe if it's bias or if there's a bias. Yeah, I mean, I guess the bias piece of it is some people can kind of get by with like, like aura and a twinkle in their eye. Mm -hmm. And so like that's sort of the traction. And so, you know, whereas other people really need to have real traction in order to get the seed funding. So I think it's, you know, a lot of it is around like managing those sort of perceptions around what traction looks like for you, what traction looks like for that industry. Is it based on certain metrics? Is it based on, um, you know, something that you've been able to do with the product or the service or the market? Um, You know, it is chicken and egg, but I also think that, you know, this is probably something I'm guessing you have a YouTube video about this as well. We do. Yeah. I think funding is one of those things where like, again, know why you want the funding. Like right. it's better to wait a lot longer to get a lot more traction um, to, you don't necessarily need that funding to get that traction. And so if you can be scrappy and you can be doing these sort of things to get yourself that traction, you might not need funding at all. You might be able to go based on your revenues and your profits and, um, so I would ask more, the question that I would sort of, the way that I would answer this is more like, what kind of traction are you looking for? And what kind of seed, what, would, what do you need that seed funding for? And we're big, we're big fans of Scrappy. We're big fans of necessity as the mother of invention, right? Get clever, burn up your brain cells before you burn venture dollars. So it's a similar thing. All right, let me close it up. You've spent a lot of time with us today. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'm going to hit a couple end things. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. Again, um, we appreciate Laura. Thank you for being on and streaming in from Harvard today. For those of you that are watching, if you're interested in a dream in Dream It, please apply. We're still talking to applications. We're still talking to startups for our next cohort. So if you know a great health tech, secure tech, urban tech company, go to dreamit.com slash apply. If you have ideas for future guests, we talked about a couple today. I have to talk to Angela and uh, Annie Duke and see if we can get them on the show. That would be great. Let us know if you have guests. Just put it in the comments. Um, check out, we've talked about it a couple times. Check out the Dream It Dose on YouTube. They're really practical pragmatic five to seven minute segments. Um, They're very focused. We release three to four a month. If you subscribe on YouTube, you'll get notified as soon as they come out. I think we have a couple more coming out in the next couple of weeks. Catch our upcoming Dream It Live episodes. We have Paul Martino from Bullpen Capital is going to be on next week. He does. They have a San Francisco office and he lives in Philly. So we're going to talk about East Coast versus West Coast valuations. We'll also talk about biases. Now I'm going to bring it up because I'm much more attuned to it. And uh, you can catch Dream It. And if you want to see us at office hours at some upcoming events, our Secure Tech team is going to be at the RSA conference the end of this month in February. We'll be out in San Francisco. You can catch us at HIMS in Orlando in March. So if you're a health tech company, make sure to go to dreamit.com slash events is the place. And you can see all of our events and sign up for office hours. And in, in uh, April, we'll be at Med City Invest in Chicago. You can catch us there. Again, go to dreamit.com slash events and you can sign up for office hours um, again if you have ideas for guests and topics let us know laura thank you for so very much time today it was awesome really appreciate your comments hopefully i didn't insult anyone with my <laughs> comments or questions and thanks everybody for tuning in today thanks take care thanks we'll talk to you later bye-bye